Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. My friend told this joke to Meryl Streep, of all people, and she laughed. And the joke was, how many hipsters does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many? You don't know? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from indie music star Jenny Lewis. That'll help break the ice. Later in the show, she'll suggest tunes to play at your next dinner party. Plus, we will speak with Patricia Arquette about her Oscar-nominated role in the groundbreaking film Boyhood. Also coming up, Alan Gilbert of the New York Philharmonic conducts an interview. Get it? Uh-huh. Author Tiffany Unique <laughs> tells an island tale, and Weird Al Yankovic answers your etiquette questions like a surgeon. Oh, yes. And if that lineup sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired back in July. So cast your mind back to a time before blizzards when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The mounting immigration crisis along the southern border. Israel has stepped up its offensive against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Brazil's World Cup dream turning into a nightmare. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Dave DiBenedetto. He is the editor-in-chief of Garden and Gun, a southern culture and lifestyle magazine. Dave, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about the uh, national anthem of Switzerland. Oh, perfect for a Southerner. <laughs> yeah, what, what's what's going on? Yeah. Is there a remix? Uh, possibly. The uh, Swiss Society for the Public Good is holding a contest for folks who are natives of Switzerland to rewrite the national anthem. Oh. They feel like the national anthem as it stands now is uh, not very interesting, exciting, and doesn't represent the country very well. So they want a metal song, basically. <laughs> yes, of course. They, w- they want pomp, power, and bombast, uh, which none of that exists. You know, the anthem is, a, is called the Swiss Psalm. It was mm. written in the 1800s uh, by a monk. And They're not known for rollicking <laughs> tunes. No, not usually. And it's been described as uh, a weather report meets a church hymn. <laughs> That's a problem. So they're having a contest? Yes. Anyone who is a Switzerland native, they can write a song. It has to be, as they say, singable in the four national languages of Switzerland. Wow. And it also has to adhere or at least play off of the core values of the Swiss. So, so neutrality. So it's going to be bland. Yeah. It's going to be bland. <laughs> Chocolatey. Well, yes, and then that, exactly, and cheesy, and that gets us right back to the problem. And it it's... could be silent like their banking laws. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Yes. Well, Dave, um, I, short of us sending them Pharrell to write a song for them, I think there's nothing we can do but wish them the best. Yes. Uh, thanks so much for the small talk. I'm glad to be here. And now time for some neutral spirits. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history. Then we have a bartender capture its essence in cocktail form. Yes, it's our triple distilled history lesson with booze. And we start, as always, with the history part. This week back in 1981, an ape was set loose in the malls of America. And everyone loved it. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. The classic cartoon Popeye spawned a totally different pop phenomenon. It was the 80s, the golden age of arcade video games. And though the Japanese gaming company Nintendo had hits in Asia, it hadn't come up with a game that would get North American kids to part with their quarters. Nintendo's idea? To make a game based on the all-American hero Popeye. But they couldn't secure the rights, so they devised their own cartoon characters who'd engage in a Popeye-esque love triangle. Instead of fighting ape-like Bluto over a woman, the game's hero, Jumpman, would fight an actual ape. Popeye meets King Kong. They named the game after the ape character, Donkey Kong. Obvious question, why donkey? Some say it was supposed to be Monkey Kong, but a fax from Japan blurred the M. The more likely story? Game designer Shigeru Miyamoto wanted a word that conveyed silly stubbornness. Those words also could have described the attitude of Nintendo's U.S. office towards the game. They thought the name was weird. And unlike every other video game, it didn't involve going through a maze or shooting stuff. But they released it anyway, with one change. They renamed Jumpman after the office landlord, who kind of looked like him. 
Mario Sagale. The game was a hit. In just two years, Donkey Kong raked in the modern equivalent of 650 million bucks, and Little Mario went on to star in over 200 more games. Nintendo did later get the okay to make a Popeye game. It never came close to topping Donkey Kong. So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. We are speaking with Richard Williams. He is a self-declared old-school video game enthusiast and also bar manager at Pi Bar in Seattle, Washington, near Nintendo USA's headquarters in Redmond, Washington. Richard, what drink did that story inspire you to make? Well, the first imagery that came to mind when I thought of Donkey Kong was just the barrels, the barrels and barrels that just come flying from the sky at you. and Mario um, has to jump over them. Yes, so I went with a, a lovely barrel-finished gin and decided to call my drink uh, the Barrel of Donkeys. <laughs> and, um, you know, just have a little bit of fun with it. All right, so you put a barrel-finished gin in there. What is that? The Ula Barrel-Finished Gin. It's a lovely botanical gin that they finish in their whiskey barrels, and it feels like a tasty gin that was kissed by a whiskey and just flirted with <laughs> oh, a little bit. It's like the, the romantic triangle of the game itself, you know? Yes, of, exactly. That's nice. And um, added just about a quarter ounce of grapefruit juice, put a splash of uh, Lillet Blanc, which is a Italian fortified white wine. And that's okay. also my little shout out to Mario with the Italian liqueur in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, a quarter ounce of St. Germain, which is an elderflower liqueur. Yes, very sweet and tasty. Yes, very sweet and very floral. And I hit it with just a tiniest splash of uh, simple syrup and garnished with a brandied cherry. Cherry, is that a nod to Pac-Man, the other great arcade video game? <laughs> Maybe, of course, uh, a little bit of shout out to some of the other classics there. there was, I have to know, by the way, there's a great recent documentary called The Fistful of Quarters. Yes about the guy who set the record for the highest ever score on Donkey Kong. Yeah, uh, Steve Wiebe, I believe it is. Yeah, he is. He's also a Seattleite. So. Exactly. He's from up in your neck of the woods. Like, what is it? It's like the local sport up there, it sounds like. Are there just a lot of ladders and barrels? <laughs> Not in the city, but there is a lot of appreciation for uh, classic gaming here, a lot of arcade culture. We also have Microsoft out here, and, you know, a lot of these people that are on the forefront, as well as some smaller game companies. The irony of this video game drink, of course, is that if you have one, you won't be very good at video games. Drinking and gaming don't always mix. (laughs) It's not dangerous, but you just won't do well. (laughs) And Brendan, I should note, Richard told me as a kid... His parents wouldn't let him play video games. Okay. So when he turned 18, he bought himself a Nintendo console and has apparently been making up for lost time ever since. All right. Yes. So so the lesson is just buy your kid the video games in the first just place. Do it or they grow up to be addicts. It's <laughs> counterintuitive, I know. By the way, people, uh, Pie Bar will be serving that cocktail while the barrel-aged gin lasts. So if you're up in Seattle, check it out. And if you're not in Seattle, you can find the recipe on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've had a cocktail, made some small talk, but it's not quite a party till there's music playing. That's right. And for that, we turn to L.A. musician Jenny Lewis. She gained fame with her band Rilo Kylie and as a member of the electropop supergroup The Postal Service, whose lone album sold over a million copies. Jenny's new solo album comes out July 29th. It's called The Voyager. Here she is with some song suggestions. Hey there, I'm Jenny Lewis, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. I've only imagined the dinner party that's playing out in my own home, which um, we affectionately nicknamed Mint Chip because it's uh, dark brown and mint green, and it looks like an ice cream cone. I've chosen songs for different types of situations. You know, most importantly, what will get people out of your house. But before we kick people out, we're going to lull them into a sense of security with a song from the 80s by a band called Derudi Column. And the song is called Amigos and Portugal. The song was first played to me by Jimmy Tamborello from the Postal Service. And we did a, a reunion tour last year and we had a, a record player with us. And this was the first uh, record that we put on. Darudi Column were 
They were a band on Factory Records, but they were unlike a lot of other bands on Factory Records. This is kind of the flip side to what you imagine, you know, was going on in the 80s in Manchester with the all-night raves and the ecstasy parties. This is sort of like the morning after music. Now the wine is starting to flow a little bit. People are starting to feel a little salty, as we like to say. So I, I want to play uh, Donnie and Joe Emerson, and the song is called Baby. Dreams of you all the time. Ooh, so good they are these dudes who made one record in the 70s and which no one heard when it came out. Oh, hey, baby. Cut to, you know, L.A. 2010. And I think Ariel Pink did a cover of the song and sort of brought it to attention. But it's really a perfect jam. It's so romantic and so beautiful and so totally wounded. Yeah, so baby. All right, here comes the final song that gets everyone to vacate Mint Chip while making me very happy. It's this Ariel Pink song called Are You Going to Look Out for My Boys? The first time I heard it, I just, I couldn't stop listening to the song. And then I played it for one of my friends, and she said, wow, this song is so annoying. It just does something to me. It's like catnip or something. Like, it just, it riles me up. The, the repetition excites me. But I think for other people, uh, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know why they don't like it. I can't, I can't understand it. Well, of course, I would never choose one of my own songs to play at my own dinner party. That would be so tacky. But if I had to, I think I'd go with uh, just one of the guys. It's track three, man. On every record that I make, I always reserve track three as the special spot for the song that feels the most relevant lyrically at the time to me. And if you listen closely, you can hear that clock ticking. The lady clock. I mean, not entirely. It's supposed to be funny, actually. I should have chosen the song about Hawaii, damn it. <laughs> Just another lady without a baby. Jenny Lewis, her latest album is called The Voyager. All right, and ladies and gentlemen, our voyage this hour has just begun. Coming up, we chat with Patricia Arquette, star of the film Boyhood, and later the legendary Weird Al Yankovic loses his cool. Well, I never! It gets ugly. Oh, man. When the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should mention this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in July, but it's well worth a second listen. In a few minutes, the conductor of the New York Philharmonic reveals himself to be a closet jazz cat, and later Weird Al Yankovic answers your etiquette questions. Yay. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and it's Patricia Arquette. She starred in some of the landmark films of the 90s, including David Lynch's Lost Highway. In the 2000s, she starred in the TV show Medium and won an Emmy for it. But her latest is literally the performance of a lifetime. In the coming-of-age film Boyhood, she plays Olivia, an embattled but resilient mom. Over the course of the film, she and the cast age 12 years because the film was shot on and off for 12 years. She won a Golden Globe for the role, and she's up for an Oscar for it. When I spoke to Patricia in July, I started by asking what year director Richard Linklater, who she calls Rick, cast her. God knows. Seems like the dawn of man. <laughs> Do you remember that far back? I don't know. It was a long time ago. Um, I think my son was 12 at the time, and I'd met Rick at a cocktail party, and then he called me out of the blue, and he asked me what I'd be doing for the next 12 years. 
And I really didn't even know what he was referencing. Yeah. I said, well, I'll probably be raising my son, hustling to get a job, and cleaning my <laughs> messy house. Same thing I'm doing now. What are you going to be doing? And he said, I'm thinking about shooting this movie a week a year for 12 years, where this little boy starts first grade and it ends when he graduates high school. And my whole body just got instantly infused with electricity. And I was like, oh, man, if you'll have me, I'm in. I'm in. He was like, we don't have any money. I was like, I'm in. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I guess I should, whoa, what's my part? Mm. He told me all the major changes my character would go through. And I said, I guess I should read a script. And he said, yeah, I don't really have a script. <laughs> and so it was just blind faith. Yeah. I was going to actually ask you how the storytelling process worked. I mean, did you get pages at all? Was the story born out of improvising? Well, those major changes that he told me the first time we talked stayed but there was also an openness to it because at a certain point he knew that the kids would really start developing and becoming their own people and he didn't really know what mm. the world would be in 12 years. I mean, 12 years ago, we didn't have podcasts. Oh, that's true. So he had, it is interesting because as the movie goes along, technology does play a bigger and bigger role. It hadn't occurred to me that that was actually happening yeah. to you and the filmmakers as you were shooting the film. Yes, it was. It was happening. And he would call a few weeks before and say, or a few months sometimes and say, well, start thinking about this. Mm. You're going to have a scene in the kids, with the kids in the car. You're going to be moving and they don't want to be moving. So he'd give sort of a broad strokes. And I would come in and we would improvise the scene. Then we would talk about life experiences we'd had or our friend had had and share stories and and then he would pull things out and add them into the scene. So in some ways you're infusing this movie with your real life. Tell me about the last day of shooting when that had to end. Yeah, it was really emotional and difficult and I didn't like it at all. And usually I'd like to end projects that excites me somehow to just finish completion or something. Yeah, yeah. But with this, I, I was saying the whole last year, like, I don't want this to stop. Mm. I don't want to share this with the world. I don't know that they're going to understand the subtle beauty of this. But, you know, I was thinking today, this movie could have been a nightmare too. You could have been like in a weird ethical position because you'd given your word to show up. Mm. But maybe these people were or this director was a jerk. And suddenly you'd be like, do I really have to show up again? Yeah. At, or because you didn't have a script, uh, it could develop in a way you really didn't like or didn't care about. So, I mean, I just lucked out, I guess. When, when you finally saw it, I, you know, I can't even imagine sitting in a dark room watching yourself age. How that did you react? That was very strange. I mean, it was part of what was exciting to me about it. I always love that time motion photography of a seed being planted and watching it blossom and then eventually decay. Mm. Still having said that, it was so rapid and intense to watch it. But what was even stranger than that, frankly, was sometimes I wouldn't be in a scene in a given year and Rick would say, well, the kid's, you know, gonna go hang out with his friends in this scene. Mm. And he's gonna come say, okay, bye mom. And then he's gonna go off with his friends. And then when I watched the movie, my character was watching the scene she wasn't in. Cause I'd never had a full script and I didn't know what was being said or happening. So it was an actual surprise to you in the same way that his mom would have been surprised. Exactly. Cause you didn't know what the kid was doing when he was away from you. <laughs> and freaked out. And like, <laughs> I was just like, I'm coming there right now. I'm picking you up. <laughs> I don't like that guy. You're not hanging out there again. <laughs> You're <laughs> I know something I kept feeling, despite the fact that the movie has this long running time, is this sense of life speeding forward. Like the way the movie mm -hmm. is edited, you'll have a scene where you're all one age, and suddenly there's a cut, and you realize it's five years later, and everyone's older and different. It's I'm a very weird play of time and space. I mean, part of the message, or if there is a message in this movie, or certainly the ending of the movie, is the moments are right now and be in the now and mm. and appreciate and love your life and the people that are in it. So here's a question we ask of all our guests of honor. And the question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. It could be about yourself or just some something interesting about the world that will... Oh my God, that's so broad. It's pretty broad. It's a lot to spring on a person. But come on, um, you just did a movie where you basically encapsulated 12 years of life. Okay, well... There's this game called Two Truths and a Lie. Okay. So you play it with people. You tell them two true stories and one lie, and they have to guess which one's the lie. All right. So that's a really fun game. <laughs> and I'll tell you one of the things that's 
I usually tell when I'm doing that. Okay, that is true, I'm assuming. I was arrested for grand theft. Really? I'm a grand thief. (laughs) (laughs) Had I known that at the beginning of the interview, I would have devoted a little more time to questioning you about this. You know what? If this was a story of my life for 12 years, your toes would be curling right now. (laughs) Okay? My acting life is the tamest thing I've ever done. (laughs) Do you mind if I ask very quickly, what was the object of your thievery? Oh, I was a kid, and me and my friend were stealing a bunch of clothes and junk and... (laughs) Santa Clauses, and I don't even know what the hell we were stealing. You were stealing not live Santa Clauses. <laughs> That's kidnapping. That's, That's another heavy. crime. That's too heavy for, for a young lady. 12-year-old or whatever. I'm assuming de- decorative Santa Clauses. Junk, but enough junk that it added up to over $500. <laughs> so that puts, pushes you into the grand theft category, <laughs> by the way. I'm assuming this has been expunged from your... Were you a juvenile? You know what? My dad's so cute. He came home when I turned 18. He said, happy birthday, you're 18. Guess where I've been all day? And I said, where? And he said, expunging your record. (laughs) He was really worried that people would know, and here I am blabbing. Patricia Arquette, she stars in the new film Boyhood. She's up for an Oscar for her performance. And Brendan, it's interesting, even the film's soundtrack kind of ages as the movie goes along. This Coldplay mm. tune that we're listening to is the opening song to represent the early 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, when yeah. Coldplay is being used to evoke a bygone age. Yeah. It makes you feel old. And now, time to eavesdrop. Tiffany Unique's stories and novellas landed her on the prestigious 5 under 35 list for emerging writers. Her debut novel, Land of Love and Drowning, draws inspiration from her native Virgin Islands. Today, we overhear an excerpt. Hi, I'm Tiffany Yannick. My novel is written in multiple first persons. My characters get to speak for themselves. This character is Annette. She's the youngest child of a captain and a woman who wishes that she was more free than she is. Here she is, Annette. Let me tell you something I know about Anagata. Because I learned plenty some things with this hard head of mine. I know that Anagata was in no place to do nothing except make love. I mean, you know the place? You even seen a postcard of Anagata? It too pretty. Like heaven and hell marry up and birth all the beauty and goodness and badness could possibly make. You hearing me? So it ain't nothing to imagine that my mama, Antoinette Stem, had come pregnant when she young. Probably for a nice boy, a lobster fisherman, who have legs like bronze. You can't blame she. Everybody loving and beautifying and the man sweet and tender. Besides, they have maybe 15 girls and 15 boys on the whole island. Of course, they're going to meet up and mix up and mate up. And all of them is the most beautiful people you ever dream. And we could just imagine what is their life back then. Fishing is life. Eating lobster twice a day is life. Swimming is life. That song like leisure, but for them then, no. Because there ain't no hospital in Anagata. No doctors. If you're dead in, you're going to dead. Can't blame nobody. No police. No lawyers. No court. Because that's the place. Perfection but with a hole in the middle. It's not an island, really. It's an atoll. You listening? So when a young captain get his young ship catch on the coral, what? Even if we just making this story up, we could easy say the Anagata girl named Antoinette is a siren. And her mother and father love she, and they want the best for she. They don't realize the girl have vision for herself beyond what the atoll know how to manage. 
so they convince the captain to marry. And it don't take much for the young Captain Bradshaw. Sure, he know that she have the other boy baby in she body. But the girl sweeter than lobster. The captain, he the kind of man know all about woman things. Swift as anything, captain and girl washed that other man baby away. So he gone with her. Love her till the day he dead, but also he own her in a way. Because of what he could make her do. Leave her fiancé. Get rid the not yet baby. Leave her anagata land and never return. I ain't saying this is the way it happened with my parents. This ain't true history. I just saying that given what we know about the place and about the time, my version seemed to have a truth somewhere. It's just a story I tell in, but put it in your glass and drink it. Tiffany Yannick, reading from her debut novel, Land of Love and Drowning, came out this week. And you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. The New York Philharmonic is the oldest orchestra in the United States. It's been led by some of the greatest musical minds in history, including Mahler, Toscanini, Bernstein, and for the past five years, Alan Gilbert, who's our guest today. He's passionate about contemporary music, but he's also a great conductor of the standard classical repertoire. Here's the Philharmonic performing Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 4 in F minor. Am I supposed to call you maestro? You know, I really prefer not to be called maestro, f- frankly. But is it like uh, when with chefs in the kitchen, you're supposed to, when you're working with a chef, call him chef? I think generally in the States, it feels more artificial. It feels like something that people do because they're supposed to. So if that's the motivation, then I, you know, I just say, forget about it. In Europe, it doesn't feel as strange. And I think that's just, it's more cultural somehow. It's like when Americans try to kiss when they're greeting people, it just seems awkward as opposed to maybe the French. Well, speak for yourself. (laughs) We did kiss when we met each other earlier. That's true. Um, How's classical music doing? I think classical music is, is doing really well. It's when people talk about decline in culture and, and the position that classical music has in, in, in our society, It, it often happens that that kind of idea is is separated from the bigger picture. You know, we all wish that there were more people coming to our concerts. I think that's pretty universal. But the fact is that it's, so, it's such a crazy world we live in now. There's so many options. There's so many things going on. People have so many choices. I think in the grand scheme of things, we're doing really well. And classical music does kind of have its superstars, like Lang Lang and other folks. There are people who I think are, you know, really, really stars. I admire Gustavo Dudamel in many ways, but the fact that he has, you know, 500,000 Twitter followers, that's awesome. He has good hair. <laughs> I would say, for me, he's such a such a hero because he he's a great musician, but also he's someone that that people will you know they'll they'll move heaven and earth to get to hear him, and that's that's the kind of thing that that's great for classical music. And for a lot of programs, it's not easy getting a ticket on a Friday night at the Philharmonic. It seems like it seems like at least in this town, things are going well for classical music. We're doing, I think, really well. We we're in the middle of a great festival, the Beethoven Piano Concertos with Yefim Bronfman. And it's nice to be reminded all over again how, first of all, how great the music is, but how, how meaningful it can be. It's, you know, one way to measure a concert, and I think on stage we all do this a little bit, is just like the number of coughs that we hear in the audience. But the audiences have been so rapt and concentrated, and you can sense it. It's not just a quiet, it's a kind of devoted quiet that really is what it's all about.
what I find most fascinating about being a conductor is that you have to be in the future in the present, right? You have to be a beat ahead. That's exactly exactly right. It's not quite that simple, but it's true that if you want to show, let's give a simple example, a loud event, you actually have to start making a loud-looking gesture a beat before it happens. Um, so it's not that you're beating at a different time, but the gesture has to reflect what's about to happen. So yeah, that's true. That's uh, it's a it's a funny thing about about conducting. So like most conductors, you play instruments like the piano and the violin. Uh, but I read that when you were a kid, you were into drums. Drums was the instrument that I chose when I when we chose instruments in fourth or fifth grade. And I started taking drums in, with a teacher in a class at, at my school. And then we had a drum set in our apartment and my parents, actually I realized what a big deal it, it was for them to do this because I would never, never accept this. But they were, the drum set was in their bedroom. Wow, loving parents. I didn't practice a lot, but when I practiced, obviously it was there in their bedroom. And I've always loved jazz. And it just came up recently. We, we've done a couple of projects with the great Japanese jazz pianist, Makoto Ozone. And he was over at our apartment for, for dinner one night and we had a little to drink or more than a little to drink. And we started talking about the drums and he said, hey, man, you should, you should play drums. And I thought, yeah, that would be cool. And I did a professional jazz gig as a drummer in Tokyo in February. Are you in danger of you dropping out, growing a beard, moving, you know, moving away and becoming a jazz cat? Uh, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. Alan Gilbert, conductor of the New York Philharmonic. We spoke in July when the orchestra was playing concerts in Central Park. Do not go there this week expecting to see anything except slush. <laughs> Stay warm, East Coast. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, a very different musician named Al, as in Yankovic. Stick around for more of this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner parties. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and it's been quite a party so far. We've gone from Donkey Kong to Beethoven. Oh, yeah. I'd love to see those two together at a dinner table. <laughs> That's the name of my memoir, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, and we still have more show, including a Requiem for Cupcakes and a Feet of Herring Dew. Oh, yeah, but first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is America's greatest contribution to the arts, oh, man. Weird Al Yankovic. He has spent much of his life taking hip-hop songs and crafting uncannily accurate-slash-ridiculous parodies thereof, which then go on to become hip-hop songs in their own right. It's very meta. Examples include the classics Eat It, oh. Like a Surgeon, and living with a hernia. A beauty. He's won three Grammys, sold over 12 million records, and he also slays on accordion. Weird Al, it's an honor. <laughs> Same here. Thanks so much. I have to say, before we get further, actually, you stole my dream, uh -oh. which was parodying songs. As a little kid, I, I wrote a parody of Beat It called Leave It. Oh. <laughs> it was about leaving your homework. And then I want to make sure you didn't steal, you didn't go through a second grade school in like Philadelphia mm -hmm. in the early 80s. I might have. And if so, I really apologize. <laughs> oh. Wow. Al. Lawsuit. There's a statute of limitations on that, though, so I don't try to bring something in a lawsuit. Just, Damn it. It's not going to work. <laughs> that was going to fund our show for the next several years. All right. Well, so, I guess we have to do this interview then. I guess so. So your new album is called Mandatory Fun, and it is, as advertised, extremely fun. But I would like to point out, you, as I mentioned before, you are a serious trained musician. You don't only do novelty songs. Oh, not everything that I do is funny. I mean, you know, I, I got to uh, uh, play with the Pixies a couple of years ago, and they did a charity benefit concert in L.A. What did so, you do? What oh, song? Wow. I, I did a, I sang a I Bleed from Doolittle. I, I got to sing that with the actual Pixies, so that was a big high point in my life, yeah. Did you sing it as I Tweed? No, they, they're like, oh, are you going to do a parody? I was like, no, I think it's mm -hmm. probably just do a straight cover version. You know, there's actually a Pixies pastiche on the new album called uh, First World Problems. Oh. Uh, so it's, it's not a parody per se, but it's meant to sound like Pixies. All right. I love it. Well, speaking about this new album, you know, this week, one of the carefully guarded parodies, it leaked out in advance of its release. You don't mind if we play a little bit, do you? I wish you would. Oh, you see, okay. you're nice. Well, it's a send-up of Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines, and it's called Word Crimes. I think the public radio audience in particular is going to dig this. Let's hear a clip. Mm -hmm. 
learn your homophones is past due. Learn to diagram a sentence too. Always say to whom, don't ever say to who. And listen up when I tell you this. I hope you never use quotation marks for emphasis. You finish second grade, I hope you can tell if you're doing good or doing well. Oh man, a grammar song yeah, at you know, last. For some reason, nobody had ever done a parody of that song based on the proper use of grammar. Well, yeah. t- tell us about how you choose a song to parody. I mean, is it data-driven? Mm-hmm. This is a popular song. It deserves you know, me sending it up. I mean, I, I obviously study the charts, and uh, if, if a song reaches number one on Billboard, that's a good indication that it would be fodder for parody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really boils down to me coming up with an idea for something, because there are a lot of songs that uh, seem like they would be good potential targets, and yet I can't think of what I perceive to be a clever enough idea. What's, what's an example? Well, my polka medleys, one of which is on the new album, uh, those are littered with songs that uh, I wish I could have come up with a better idea for. Hmm. Those are the odds and ends. Right, right. And, the, you know, this isn't easy work, what you do. You make it seem easy, but am I right? You're a high school valedictorian. That's right. Studied architecture at Cal Poly. If music hadn't worked out, what would Unweird Owl be doing? I, I shudder to think. You know, I, I did get my degree in, in architecture, and uh, I found out about my third year in, in college that it just wasn't my passion. And I thought, well, do I want to be mediocre doing something that I'm not really that excited about for the rest of my life? I kind of like the idea of you maybe doing parodies of architecture, like a, you know, a Geary par- I don't know uh-huh. what that would look like. It would look like a Geary. Some of my <laughs> professors definitely thought I was doing parodies of architecture. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, we put out that you were going to be answering etiquette questions and had an unbelievable response. Are you ready Great, to answer let's do this? It. Sure. All right. So this first question comes from Mayhul in London, England, and he writes, if one is on a first name basis with you, is it proper form to call you Weird. Absolutely not. If you're on a first adjective <laughs> basis with me, you can call me weird. But first name, you got to go with Al, for sure. You still have quotes around your name. Why do you still well, keep okay, the here, quotes here, around the Weird Al? Here's the style usage on that. The quotes around Weird Al, if it's with Yankovic, because Weird Al is the nickname. Okay. The nickname mm-hmm. isn't weird. It's Weird Al. But but Weird Al by itself doesn't need quotes. So if you ever like you need to teach a class on proper <laughs> usage of quotes around Weird Al. You should do a song about it. I should. Exactly. Maybe you should do a song about grammar. Well, what am I thinking? <laughs> That's nuts. Here's something from Annie in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And Annie writes, Hi, Al. That's nice of her. My sister has custody of my father's child-size accordion. Oh. Mm. It holds lots of sentimental meaning for her, but she has no children. I have two children and would love for them to learn to play the accordion. What is the best way... (laughs) to go about getting the accordion from my sister mm. without upsetting her. Oh, okay. Well, I would I would probably go with chloroform. No, come on. Because uh, then, you know, she wakes up from the dinner party and the accordion is gone. You and your kids are in another country under assumed names. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she's none the wiser. Yeah, maybe she has yeah. one yeah. kidney gone. But I, I have to wonder, though, like why her her dad decided to leave the accordion with the, the barren sister. I mean, why? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Why? I, I suppose he, he maybe had the foresight to realize that the, the kids would use the uh, accordion's power for evil instead of good. Yeah. All right, Annie. Well, I think you have your answer. Drug your sister and uh, steal it. Sure. (laughs) This next question comes from Ted in Lexington, Kentucky. Ted writes, when I lived in a large apartment complex, there were shared coin-operated washers and dryers in the laundry room. Other tenants always left their laundry in the machines long after the cycle had finished. One day, I needed a dryer. So I took another tenant's clothes out of the dryer and put them neatly on top. When I returned to get my dry clothes... I found that the clearly very angry tenant had put a raw egg in with my drying clothes. Oh, my God. Who was in the wrong here? I, I think it's not necessarily something that was hostile or a prank. It could be, you know, when I was, a, during, during my single days, uh, oftentimes I'd go to the laundromat to to, uh, to dry my damp eggs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, why, why, why use a whole dryer for one egg when you can put it with somebody else's clothes? That's you know? true. And yeah. like like my great grandfather Blind Lemon Yankovic always says, you, you can't you you can't go to a laundromat and dry your egg without breaking a few eggs. That's true. You can't break an omelet without drying a few clothes. Seriously, yeah. I mean, it does seem pretty straightforward, right? But the guy was in the wrong. <laughs> you don't you crack think, a raw egg. It's not. It's not cool. No. G- generally, yeah. Unless you're just really into eggs. You know, eggs can give your hair healthy proteins and, and an extra sheen to your dog's coat. So maybe mm. they were looking out for Ted. That's right. The, the, you could rub the clothes on their dog. They wanted his back hair to be shiny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Run with that, Ted. All right. So our next question comes from Cody in Arkansas, and Cody writes: Is it rude to tell people they are being rude? 
Oh, yeah. That's, you know, you can't really say it in those words. You can't say you are being rude because that in itself is sort of rude. And yeah. you're sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, writing a rude Mobius strip. It's like a rude catch 22. <laughs> the, the only thing you're really uh, allowed to say is, uh, well, I never. And you can say that over and over in various <laughs> degrees of loudness and inflection. Uh-huh. Well, uh-huh. I never. <laughs> Well, I never. And just keep saying that over and over and over until the person who offended you slowly walks away. There right. you go. You kind Cody. of weird them out, it sounds That's like. A yeah. Great answer. There you go, Cody. And uh, here's something from Hannah in Los Angeles. Hannah writes, Dear Al, what do you say to people who won't stop talking at a concert? Oh, this happens to me all the time. It's so infuriating. Okay, All you can do is really call them out on it. Like a couple of years ago, I was at this uh, REM concert and uh, Michael Stipe would not shut up. <laughs> he just kept talking and talking. I was like, Michael, play shiny, happy people. Come on. This is not what I came for. You know, and I think the performers appreciate it when you get them back on track because sometimes That's they wander point. off. So yeah. yeah, I think Michael thought I was pretty cool after that. Yeah, well, you nice. could have you could have also pointed at him and said, "Well, I never, <laughs> well, I never, <laughs> Michael Stipe, <laughs> as I live and breathe." All right. Well, we have one question that we ask all of our guests. It's a little different than a classic etiquette question, but the question is. What's the most memorable party you've ever been to? Ooh. I, I think 1984, October 1984, it was the uh, release party for Paul McCartney's film, Give My Regards to Broad Street. Oh, yeah. And a uh, wow. huge Beatles fan, and, and he, was, he was surrounded by press and media and hangers-on, and I slowly kind of weaseled my way up to him, and, and he knew who I was, which, which kind of blew my oh, mind. Yeah. Anyway, what really was memorable about that party was the cake. It was so good. It was like this, <laughs> this angel food cake with, like, the filling was, like, strawberry. Oh, yeah. And whipped cream. It was like sure. moist. Mm. Oh, yeah. I will never forget that. That cake. stays with you. It does. I'm sure it was special cake. All right, Weird Al Yankovic, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. <laughs> my pleasure. Rizzy, my dear, why are we here? Nobody knows. We go to sleep as breathing flows. My mind succeeds. I bleed. Weird Al Yankovic singing the Pixies tune, I Bleed, live with the actual Pixies. Nice. That song's not on his otherwise swell new album, Mandatory Fun. And people, send us your etiquette questions, won't you? Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Enrico, it's been a great run. You, are you leaving the show right now? What? Are you quitting? No, not no, not until my cubicle hammock patent goes through. Oh. I'm talking about this year's herring run. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you. Each summer for a few weeks, the tastiest herring of the year, what's called new catch herring, of are found in the seas of Northern Europe. And if you're lucky, you can find some in U.S. stores now. Last year, I spoke with an expert on the subject, Nikki Russ Fetterman. She's one of the proprietors of the shop Russ and Daughters in New York City, where every year the arrival of new catch herring is a full-on event. I asked what makes the fish so special. It's a young herring, and this time of year it hits its peak omega-3 fat content, which is about, uh, normally it's about 16%. And what that translates into is this piece of buttery, gastronomic heaven. So is that so? Is that what you're looking for in a herring? That's what distinguishes one type of herring from another is the fat content? Well, there are all different kinds of herrings uh, and all different herring preparations. If you look at our uh, herring showcase, you'll see about 10 different kinds of herrings from pickled herrings, smoked herrings, uh, herrings uh, marinated in cranberry clove sauce or a curry, a mustard and dill. We have German roll mops, a, a, a Bismarck-style herring, and the Holland herring, which is different from all of those because it's unadulterated herring. It's not pickled. It's not, it's not seasoned in any way. Think of this uh, as the sushi version of herring. And how did the Holland herring, of all these different herrings, we have French herring and Swedish herring, how did this one become the one that we eat sushi style. Well, this particular herring just lends itself so beautifully to just being enjoyed as is. Um, In Holland, the the catch for this herring is a source of national pride. It's actually a national holiday when the the first uh, fish come into port. Uh, So it's a really big deal. In Holland, you'll see the equivalent of a 
a, a hot dog cart in New York, you'd see a, a herring push cart in Holland where you, people eat these, these herrings on the street. And at Russ and Daughters, my family's been importing these herrings for uh, over 10 years now. And every year we've just seen an increase in... Herring enthusiasm. It's herring madness. So have they been doing this in Holland for a while? This isn't like one of those Beaujolais things where the, but the Herring Association decided where they were going to throw a party. Right. This is not a, uh, a marketing uh, ploy. This has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And herring actually is historically a fish that has been so critical to so many countries. Wars have been fought over herring. Uh, so when you, I think part of the intensity of feeling that people have around herring, this very humble fish, is partly that when you eat a herring, you're eating foods that our ancestors have eaten. I'm guessing the herring, due to its size, is lower on the food chain. So that means it's there's, it's more plentiful than other fish? It, it, it's more plentiful. It's also, because it's a small fish, it's high in omega-3s, but low, very low in mercury. We have customers here who are literally in their hundreds. And if you ask them what they attribute their longevity to, they will say, eating herring. Can I try that? Can, I, can we? Yeah, let's do it. Actually, I, um, this time of year, I try to eat at least one of these herring a day. So you came just in time. For your herring feeding. It is. All right, so we're looking at two herring. They're about, what, five, six inches? Six inches long, delivered next to a side of minced onions. So is there any, do I need to know any? Is there any particular wrist action? I yeah. The most traditional way to eat this herring is almost as if you were a seal, just by taking the, the, the tail. We have two fillets of herring that are attached at the tail, the little tailbone, and you just take that tail and you lift the herring up over your head and you, you know, tilt your head back and you just eat it um, like a seal. You want, I'll demonstrate for you. How about that? So All right. The onions are optional. It's, it's delicious as is. So you can kind of fold the wax paper and just to stick the onions onto one side of the herring. And then you take it by the tail, lift it up. And you're just snapping at it like as if you were a seal. If a seal had hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and two legs. Yeah. So I'm going to fold my fish with my onion and kind of it's like I'm making the first step of making a paper airplane. And so now the onions have stuck to it. How do we know the onions aren't going to fall down? They might. Okay. Wow. It's delicious. It's really, really good. It just disappears. Man. And it's not as... I mean, I've had herring before, but it's not as fishy as like the roll tops or, or something like that. The roll mops. Sorry, the roll mops. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. And actually... For whatever reason, herring has gotten a bad rap, and people have sort of misconceptions, or you know, they're sort of primed not to like it. So we kind of have to open them up, and and when people then taste it, they just are blown away. Although herring bone has always been very popular in both tweed jackets and in tile. Now I find more. Um, so herring is making a comeback in design and fashion and food. Enrico, I called Russ and Daughters just before the show, right. and unfortunately, they are sold out of New Catch Herring. No. But if, you, yeah, but if you keep your eyes peeled, you can still find it in some other fish shops. Okay. In the meantime, you can just eat vegetables like a seal. That's right. Asparagus might work. Yeah, it's floppy. It's the, her- it's the herring of vegetables. <laughs> and that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download, folks. Yes. Tune in next week when our guest will include Eddie Redmayne, an Oscar nominee for his portrayal of Stephen Hawking in the movie The Theory of Everything. Till then, you can keep up with us on Twitter or Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker produces our show. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. Our interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Engineering this week, courtesy of Bill Lance and Daniel Ramirez. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now it's time for One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The beloved UK band Bell and Sebastian released their new album, Girls in Peacetime Want to Dance, this week. We dare you not to hum along to nobody's empire. Bon appétit. Lying on my bed I was reading French with the light too bright for my senses. From this hiding place life was way too much it was loud and rough round the edges so I faced the wall when an old man called out of dreams that I would die there. But at sight unseen, you were pulling strings You had a different idea 
was like a child, I was light as straw When my father lifted me up there He took me to a place where they checked my body My soul was floating in thin air I clung to the bed and I clung to the past I clung to the welcome darkness But at the end of the night there's a green green light The quiet before the Madness. There was a girl that sang like the chime of a bell And she pulled out a rock She touched me when I was in hell When I was in hell Someone sang a song and I sang along Cause I knew the words from my childhood Intellect ambition, they fell away and they Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks. Oh, eggs are done. Oh, great. Mmm. They're really fluffy. That's the fabric softener. Mmm. Wow, if you listened all the way through a minute and a half of silence, you are an extra special fan. Uh, We just put all that silence at the end of our podcast file to make up for a technical problem that was apparently causing some people to not hear the entire episode. But um, congratulations, you're an extra special fan, and we appreciate it. Good night, slash day, depending on what time it is.